Esther 9 introduces us to the day of the book of Esther. This is the day that the whole book of Esther has been pointing to up until this point. The 13th day of the 12th month. This is the day circled by Haman, the great despot and enemy of the Jews. This was the day that he contrived to destroy all the Jews in all 127 provinces of the Medo-Persian Empire. It was the day in which all of the Persian, Persian citizenry was directed to, quote, in Esther chapter 3, if you'll remember, to destroy, to kill, to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. So, 11 months in advance, this day was announced. Now, if you've been with us as we've walked through Exodus, you know that Esther and Mordecai thwarted Haman's diabolical plan. Now, Haman is, in chapter 9, he's dead. And he's hanging on the gallows he had constructed for Mordecai. He was dead, but his decree lived on. The Persians had this asinine belief that when a king made an edict, it could never be repealed. So Haman's decree was technically still the law of the land. But here's the confusing thing. Mordecai, the new prime minister, and Esther's uncle, also released a decree in the name of the king and also directed people to do this. It read in part from Esther chapter 8. The king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day, throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, that's also King Xerxes, same name, on the 13th day of the 12th month. So what do we have here? We have... We have dueling decrees. We have a civil war looming. We have both decrees are the law of the land, and people needed to wait to see what was going to happen on the 13th day of the 12th month. As the curtain goes up in Esther chapter 9, this is the day that dawns, the 13th day of the 12th month. As we read, we will see that the reversal, the rescue of the Jews is completed. The people of God were not just rescued, but their enemies are going to lay dead at their feet. And if you want a word to describe what's going to happen in this chapter, as we've been trying to attach words to each chapter, it would be this, eucatastrophe. Eucatastrophe. Man, that may be a new word for you, but it's a word that was coined by an author named J.R.R. Tolkien, and it's the opposite of a catastrophe. A catastrophe is a sudden event that causes great harm or suffering. A eucatastrophe is the opposite. It's a sudden event that causes great blessing and rejoicing. Someone described Tolkien's use of the word like this. A eucatastrophe, you can see how it's spelled, a eucatastrophe 
is a massive turn in fortune from a seemingly unconquerable situation to an unforeseen victory, usually brought by grace rather than heroic effort. And that's the story of Esther, chapters 1 through 9, and all the way through the whole book. This is a story that's brought the rescue that comes to the people of God is not by heroic effort on either, of the, either part of Mordecai or Esther, but the rescue that comes is by God, even though His name is mentioned nowhere in this book. God is faithful to His faithless people. That's what we see. God is faithful to His faithless people. Now, let's track this through as we watch the events unfold from Esther chapter 9. First, the day dawns, and we see this day in Esther chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. If you have a Bible, follow along, and I'll stop periodically, and we'll talk about what it means. Here's the day. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gave mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of the king Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews. For the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. So, the twelfth day of the thirteenth day of the twelfth month was a wildly victorious day for the Jews. The dueling decrees, remember those decrees, one by Haman, one by Mordecai. We see in verse 3 that the Persian officials, and we see satraps, governors, royal agents, who were once directed to kill the Jews, now we read, help the Jews. They're following Mordecai's decrees and not Haman's, but yet at the same time, there were a great number of people who decided to fight the Jews to try to plunder their goods. But the government is on the side of the Jews. They fought alongside the Jews. Why did they fight alongside the Jews? Verse 4 tells us, For Mordecai was great in the king's house. And his fame spread throughout all the provinces, for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The reason the Persian officials, from the satraps down to the royal agents, the reason that they fought alongside the Jews is because they feared Mordecai and not Haman anymore. Haman was dead, and Mordecai was elevated to his place. Doing the will of Mordecai made good political sense, and it made good sense for them to prolong their lives. But there's something else going on here as well. We have in verse 4 a subtle allusion that compares Mordecai to Moses. Mordecai of Esther, the book of Esther, is compared here to Moses from the book of Exodus. We know this because Moses is spoken of in almost exactly the same way in Exodus. Look at verse 4 of chapter 9 as I read Exodus chapter 11, verse 3. Moreover, the man Moses was great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. Now, both Mordecai and Moses are spoken of as great in a foreign land. 
Why should we note this? Because the narrator is subtly comparing the rescue of, that the Jews experienced in the Exodus from Egypt to the rescue they're about to experience in Persia. Both are surprising and eucatastrophic, as it were, and both are the work of God alone. But Moses was a man of God who constantly called out to the Lord, who constantly praised the Lord, who constantly called his people to follow the Lord, who constantly lived in fear of the Lord, and Mordecai. Mordecai, with him we have no record of him praying, no record of him worshiping, no record of him directing people to call on God's name, no record of him expressing any gratefulness of any kind. But yet, God would still rescue his people. The rescue that God gives and delivers to all of his people for all time is based on his faithfulness, not based on the faithfulness of his people. God is faithful even when his people are not. That's true here, that's true now. Mordecai was great, (coughs) but he was not a man of God. Now the Persians were all on the side of the Jews, so what happened on this day, verse 5? The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them. And they did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men and also killed Parshadatha and Dalphon and Aspatha and Poratha and Adalia and Aridatha and Parmishta and Arissa and Aridai and Vizatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. Now, you read, as I read that, you're thinking, man, I'm glad I didn't have to read that. Exactly. Well, why would the author, the narrator of Esther, list out the ten sons of Haman? Now, here's why. <laughs> um, the Persian names of Haman's ten sons sounded like unflattering Hebrew words. Okay? You know, sometimes you can speak two languages. There are words that are spoken in one language that come off very differently in another. Well, this is lost on us in English, but apparently their names, their Persian names, when repeated to a Hebrew audience, had different meanings. So, things like, so they're these boys, these kids, these men, were called things like mule, annoying dripping, excrement, and various other things that I will spare your ears from. Why? Because the author is wanting us to know that these enemies of the Jews were not just killed. They were mocked and they were derided. They were utterly destroyed. And the news that day got to the king. And again, this king is clueless, not knowing what to do unless someone gives him direction. Verse 11, that very day the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, was reported to the king. 
And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men, and also the ten sons of Haman. What, they have, what then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. <coughs> and Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. Then the citadel of Susa is only ten acres big. So this property sits on five acres. Double this property. That is how big the citadel of Susa was. And we see that 500 men in that small confine, and then we'll see another 300 men will be killed. And that means that there were those many, that there's some serious fighting right there in and around the king's headquarters. And all the enemies of the Jews were put to death. Esther wants to make sure that the threat to the Jews would be completely rooted out. And so she asked for the day to be continued. She wants to make sure that the enemies are all rooted out and destroyed. And the request to display the ten bodies of Haman's son sound barbaric, but it was common in ancient warfare. She put on display what would happen to those who opposed the king, God, the God of the Jews. And so this day dawns, and the day continues. So we have the day, and we have the day continued. In verses 14 through 19, the king agrees to Esther's request. Verse 14, so the king commanded this to be done, and a decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa, but laid no hands on the plunder. And then the, the narrator gives us further reports of this empire-wide fighting. Verse 16, Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them. But they laid no hands on the plunder. A whopping 75,000 people who were literally called haters by the, Jew, by the Jews, were killed that day. And strikingly, even though the Jews were permitted to take the property of their enemies as plunder, they did not. And instead of enriching themselves, they gained fame and safety throughout the empire. And this victory was so grand, so unexpected, that they instituted a new holiday. The Day of Dread, the 13th day of the 12th month, became a holiday, complete with the exchange of gifts and all. Verse 17. This was the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day of gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. 
Now, in this summation, in verses 17 through 19, twice in this section, we read that the people of God, the Jewish people here in Esther, rested. This means that they were able to rest from their enemies. Now, if, you re- if you've been following this story all the way from the beginning of Esther, Jews resting from their enemies would not just seem impossible, or would not just seem unlikely, but completely impossible. Through a series of unlikely events and, <coughs> and insane coincidences, including a sleepless night, the Jewish people were saved by the mighty hand of God, even though the name of God is never named in this book. And remarkably, nowhere in this book do we have any evidence that any people, Mordecai, Esther, or any of the people of God, call out to worship, pray, or express thanks to God. His name is not even ever on their lips, and yet God saved them just the same. What does this tell us? It tells us that God is faithful even when his people are not. God is faithful even when his people are not. See, the reality as Christians is that we're not much different than the people of God in Esther. We live in a world as exiles just like they did. We live in a world where people are conspiring against Christ and they're arrayed against his name. And they use his name, if they use it at all, as a cuss word. And yet, even we as Christians can use the best of our energies to strategize for solutions instead of praying for steadfastness. We can use the best of our energies to try to think how to get out of our situation, then call upon the name of the Lord for help. I'm grateful that our standing before the Lord is not fundamentally based on our faithfulness or our obedience but it's based on the faithfulness of God and the obedience of our Savior. See, here's the thing that we rest from. See, there's a rest that is experienced here in Esther. These people, they rested from those that were trying to kill them because they were all dead. We have a better and more enduring rest now because Haman, though he is gone in Esther chapter 9 and all of his children are gone so that none of them could rise up and, and continue the war against the Jews, There are other enemies besides Haman that live on to this day. And there are always other enemies of the people of God. But we have, as Christians, a rest that is more enduring. A rest that is more powerful. A rest that we can enjoy on a daily basis that cannot be taken away by any of our enemies. Make no mistake, we as Christians have enemies. And the greatest enemy is the evil one and his minions that lives to destroy the souls of Christians. And friends, even in the face of that enemy that's far greater than Haman, we have reason today to revel in the rest that is ours in Christ. We now have no reason to fear the evil one. Not because we're greater or stronger or more mighty, but because our Savior has conquered. See, God is still in the business of delivering you catastrophes. He's still in the business of of providing surprising reversals. And we have two enemies that I want to draw our attention to this morning that we can rest from and we must rest from. The enemy of sin 
and the enemy of death. It's the power of sin and the power of death that now no longer has power over us. See, it's possible to know that sin and death no longer have power over us or hold sway over us, but yet not rest in that. So we can still be frightened and afraid and live in fear and terror about what might happen when we die, or even as Christians, live in terror and dread when we commit sins and fight against sins and and don't seem to experience victory. But friends, we must rest in these victories. In the brief time we have left, let's think about the two ways we can rest here from both the power of sin and the power of death. First, rest from the power of sin. See, the problem with sin is that all of mankind is subject to its power. And this is the most obvious thing about our race. We excel at sinning against others, against ourselves. We excel at hating and being hated. We excel at, being, at envying and being envied. All the while, sin, our sin, the sin that we carry around in our lives, the sin that humanity carries around, is primarily against the holy God. Mankind's great problem is not that there are enemies out there like we have here in Esther chapter 9, but mankind's great problem is that we are sinners who fall short of God's glory. The great enemy of our souls is not an army arrayed against us out there, but it is in our hearts. We are all born corrupt and stained with the power of sin. We're all subject to its power and its whims. We don't have to be trained to sin. It is natural because it's written on our hearts because we are born a corrupt race. And Exodus chapter 15, verse 3 says, The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is His name. And we would expect the Lord to come and make war on sin by making war on sinners. Why? Because that's what we would do. Think about it when you're wrong. When someone wrongs you, I'm not talking about in traffic where they cut you off or someone says something that's a little sideways, but someone wrongs you in a significant way. What do you want to do? You want to get even. You want them to feel what you felt. That's what we would do. But that's not what the Lord has done. See, though we sinned against Him, though we are under the power of sin, He does not come back to try to get even with us. He pities us because He's merciful and gracious, patient and abounding in steadfast love. So miracle of miracles, the Lord, when He came, He did not come as a man of war. He did not come with His sword drawn, riding a white war horse. He came as a baby. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And it was the most unlikely rescue hero in the history of the universe. There were no great crowds at his birth. No one expected much of a baby born in a backwater town, far away from the corridors of power. Nobody gathered to celebrate the fact that he was there, not in much numbers at least, but heaven held its breath and could not contain its shouting when it cried, glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom He is pleased. 
Humanity may not have understood the beginning of the eucatastrophe of the incarnation, but yet heaven did. Heaven was emptied of God the Son so that he might come and rob us of our sin and make us holy. As the song says, the one who created all things become, became one of his lowly creatures. The one who holds all things together by the word of his power was held by his mother. And even more shocking was the mode of the reversal. It wasn't to do any of the things that would occur to us. He didn't come to get a political following or to gain political power or to accrue money or popularity to try to make a difference. His mission was to save and not merely just to inform. And so on the most, there was a, a more unexpected, scandalous day in history, more, far, more, far more important than the 13th day of the 12th month of Adar. And that was the day that Jesus, God the Son, eternity, the eternal one who became man, it was that day that he hung on a tree. Part of the reason that Haman and his sons were hung on a tree was because of the message from Deuteronomy, chapter 21, verse 23. And if a man has committed a crime, punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night, but you shall bury him on the same day. Why? For a hanged man is cursed by God. A hanged man is cursed by God. When Haman and his sons hung, it was a sign that they were cursed by God. But it was also a sign when Jesus hung on a cross that he was cursed by God. Make no mistake, Jesus was cursed by God. Why? That's the power of sin. The curse that laid upon us was put on him. Jesus hung there and took upon himself each and every one of our sins. And as he hangs there, he doesn't ask for our help. When he dies, he proclaims it is finished. What's finished? In part, what's finished is the reign of the power of sin in the life of his people. If you're a Christian, you have rest from the power of sin. You no longer have to be a slave to sin because you are no longer a slave to sin. You have been set free. The message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, this unforeseen eucatastrophe, is this. The unlooked mighty reversal. This is our only hope. The gospel message that is mocked as foolish <clears throat> and insufficient, this message will and would solve all the ills of the world. But we, who have experienced the miracle of the new birth, new birth enjoy this truth and know it well. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the very power of God. And this is the message 
that we must cherish and take our rest in. Christian, you have rest from the power of your sins. You no longer live as subject to those sins. You might think, sure doesn't feel that way. True, we have many sins to battle against. But none of them, if you're a Christian, if you're in Christ, none of those sins are identity-defining sins. Why? Because God was faithful even when his people were not. And that's the miracle of grace. We have rest from the power of our sins. Not because of the power of our obedience. Not because of the power of our duty. Not because of our respect or our worship. Not even because we're sincere. But because of the power of God in Christ. One of the saddest things I ever heard was when a dear saint I knew drew near to the end. She lived for decades following the Lord. And at the end, someone asked her if she was looking forward to seeing Jesus. And she said, well, I hope I've done enough to see him. That's getting the, the gospel exactly backwards. Friends, none of us have. None of us have done enough to see Jesus. None of us have, none, have been enough, have obeyed enough, have worshipped well enough to see Jesus. None of us have obeyed in such a way to where the Lord can look down and say, you are compelling, you are welcomed into my presence. None of us. Not a one of us. All of us have sinned and fallen short. But the point of the Gospel is that we look away from our duty, look away from what we've done, and look instead to Jesus Christ so that we might be able to have hope. Because if the hope of the Gospel lies in something I did or you did, there is no hope in that. But that's not where our hope lies. The curse that laid upon us has been broken. We have received rest. We have received rest. Friends, sin remains, but Christ remains with more power in us. And we can rest from the power of our sins knowing that our sins will not be counted against us because Jesus was cursed as he hung on that tree. And in this, this life of faith that is not sight, we will have to fight to obey, and it will be hard. But our obedience is a sign that we love Jesus, not a precondition for Jesus to love us. So we look back, and we see what Christ has done. Friends, are you resting in that power that he has given you? Not as a result of your faithfulness, but as a result of His faithfulness. See, one more thought on this for Christians. It can feel godly to dwell on your sins and where you fall short and think, how could I do that? Or why did I do that again? It's not, though. See, when we receive the gift of conviction from the Holy Spirit, it's not so that we can dwell on and meditate on what we've done wrong. It's so that we can confess 
to the Lord who freely forgives. See, we must look. We must be experts, not in looking at our sin, but in looking at our Savior. There's a great difference between the two. You focus on your sin, you end up focusing on yourself. But we focus on Jesus. Because he's the author and the perfecter of our faith. He is the one who stood in our place when we couldn't stand. Dwell on Christ. Not on those things that keep you from him. Not on those sins. If you're here and you're not following Jesus, what's stopping you? The blessings of his death and resurrection can be yours as well. You can have rest too. You don't have to perform. You don't have to measure up. You don't have to turn over a new leaf. You have to give yourself to Jesus. The precondition for salvation is need. If you're aware that you need a Savior and go to Him, He will not turn your way. He forgives everyone, though your sins be as scarlet. He will wipe them clean and make them white as wool. Why? Because Jesus hung on the tree as a curse. Friends, the gospel message is that you can be freed from that enemy within, that power of sin. All those who acknowledge their guilt and sin before God and come to Jesus asking for forgiveness, he will save and he will keep and he will preserve. Not as a a result of your own faithfulness, but because of the faithfulness of our God. Friends, we can rest from the power of sin. We also have rest from the power of death. Death is in the world today because sin entered first. Death is now no longer a threat. If you're a believer in Jesus, this doesn't mean you're not going to die. You will die. But you will not taste the substance of death. This is so much the case that in the New Testament, the most common way that writers speak of Christians dying, this is especially true in Paul, is that he speaks of them as falling asleep. There's few things more peaceful than just falling asleep. If you're in their 30s, 40s, and 50s and you have children, there's few things more peaceful than an afternoon nap away from their cries and demands, right? What's threatening about falling asleep? What's threatening about a quiet Sunday afternoon nap? Nothing. Maybe some of you just woke up. Welcome back. Death is as much of a threat to us as a nap. Why? Because one day the Lord will awake us. There will be a trumpet. And we will live 
eternally. One day we will breathe our last on this earth, but that's not the same thing as dying. Jesus died to take the curse of death away so that we might have the blessing of eternal life. Death will come for all of us, and it may seem frightening, but we can rest in the victory that we have in Christ. When Jesus rose from the dead, he took custody of death. Now, Jesus owns it. Jesus owns death. He's got the keys. That's what happened when he rose from the dead. He conquered and he vanquished death. So now he owns it like, he own, like if you have a little yappy dog, like you own a little yappy dog. I've got a little yappy dog now. And every time I come home, my little yappy dog yaps. Every time. Every time. I know, it's hilarious. Every time. Every time I come home, he's barking at me. And all I need to do is go. And he cowers. Or then he realizes, oh, wait a minute, it's you. Crisis averted. Yay. My life is best and amazing. Death is going to bark at us like that yappy dog. But Christ has taken hold of death. And now death is no threat. The empty tomb signals the death of death. Death will still yap. It will still carry on. It might be frightening, but friends, we do not have to fear. We don't have to fear for ourselves. We don't have to fear for our kids who are Christians, our parents who are Christians, our spouses who are Christians. We don't have to fear for them anymore. Death is no longer a rogue power ravaging humanity. Not for us. We can rest in the curse. The, death, the curse of death is broken. Death is not an impervious foe. It's not a threat. It's no longer able to devour us. It's no longer able to stalk us and destroy us. Death is dead. Death is dead, and it's been exposed. It's hanging up on the gallows, as it were, with the empty tomb. Jesus is alive. And as Christians, we can rest. The power of sin has been broken. The power of death has been broken. Why? Because we are faithful? No, because he is faithful. Because of what we've done? No, because of what he's done. Because we're obedient? No, because he was obedient. Because we'll do better tomorrow? No, because he has done everything for us and he shouted, it is finished. And no longer do we have to measure up because Christ has taken our place. And friends, we can take rest. We can rest in that fact. God, by his faithfulness, has saved even us who are unfaithful. Let's pray.